hello and welcome to iDeveloper Live, episode 51, take two. <laughs> we had a go at episode 51 last week, but the uh, the world of Skype and the world of the internet was out against us. But um, we've been uh, chatting on Skype for a few minutes now and uh, things have been okay, so um, let's... Uh, Let's hope it's going to stay that way. So hopefully with me all the way over in sunny San Francisco is Mr. John Fox. And this is one of those rare moments when it actually is sunny in San Francisco. I, I don't know whether climate change is something that we should be grateful for or if it has absolutely nothing to do with it. But uh, I think I find it unseasonably pleasant and almost Californian. And uh, with us in absolutely, I've no idea what the weather is like there right now, <laughs> Grand Rapids, Michigan, Mr. Chris Adamson, indie developer and author. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing today? I am really good, but we have to start with that first question. How is the weather in Grand Rapids? It has been rainy all morning, and we need that for the grass here. And we had an early spring, and then winter tried to make a comeback, and now it's spring again. So things are settling into where they are supposed to be here. Uh, that's all this morning, now, yes? So is it true what Mitt Romney says, that kind of the trees are the right height and, and kind of everything that grows is just perfect in Michigan? <laughs> well, yeah. If you've ever been to the west side of this state, this is like where everybody from the Midwest can come and vacation. You know, the, the southwest part of our state is basically all summer homes for people from Chicago. And Grand Rapids is sort of, you know, if nothing else, everybody who's on vacation from like Chicago, when their MacBook dies, they come up to the Apple store here in Grand Rapids because that's the only Apple store within about 100 150 miles so that's sort of you know the little hub of our of our mac geek activity here on this side of the state and that you know that latitude within uh, this part of the, uh, the the northern hemisphere so is it safe to say that you are the most uh, famous thing out of ground rapids anytime in the last 20 years i would say that president gerald ford probably beats me on that point <laughs> oh but only okay. just only just <laughs> only just. well He's got a museum, and, and, and he was a he was a football star. And uh, but between that, it's like I, I think it's between me and the ska band Mustard Plug. I think we're we're dueling it out right here. But we also our city came out a, a year ago. There was a thing in an article in a magazine. It said you know cities around America that are dying, and one of them was Grand Rapids, just because they figured, hey, it's in Michigan. Everything in Michigan's dying. <laughs> and they did this big thing downtown where they did a lip dub with like. 5,000 citizens turned out and all the local celebrities and they put it on YouTube and it got like 2 million hits. So, I mean, this is a city that actually has, there's a real sense of civic pride. We moved here on purpose from Atlanta four years ago because this was a better place. It's actually, uh, the, um, Forbes said this is the number one place in America to raise a family. And like I said, it, it met a lot of our minimum criteria for working indie, not the least of which is it has an Apple store. So... <laughs> So hold on a second. What 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 was it that you were lip dubbing the scene from from? Uh, oh, they, from, they actually are we did, saying we're not dead yet or something? From no, that? they actually did the um, the song American Pie because that's a whole song about you know like like loss and nostalgia and it was more like uh, you know we're coming back and it, it was a pretty neat lip dub. Just go look up Grand Rapids lip dub on um, on YouTube and you'll see it's it's a pretty city. And there's a lot going on here. And we have a heck of a lot of brew pubs. If you like brew pubs and pinball, this is a good place to come. iDeveloper Live, brought to you by the Greater Grand Rapids <laughs> Chamber of Commerce and Bureau of Tourism. How did we get on this topic? <laughs> I'm, I'm, but see, what, 
we do is we we start the show with going very far afield, and then it's on me to kind of link it together. But I'm having ah, a hard time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, John, your, your professionalism has just gone. Let's move on to something that is uh, slightly more maybe developer related, um, more core to our mission. Yeah, yeah, but we're not doing that yet, John. You, you've just you've just uh, blown yourself too early there. Um, if you will excuse that phrase. Um, <laughs> if we <laughs> oh, there's we, an edit. We've been talking. Oh, we don't do edit on this show. Um, we've been talking oh, the last, few, last few weeks about. Um, uh, WWDC and when are they going to release it and of course uh, uh, the last week when we went on the air uh, we would have said it all over again but they released it and two hours two hours sellout so um, we're not going to um, uh, talk too much about this because every other podcast on earth um, regardless of whether it's a developer show or not has done um, even I think it was on the main national news here or maybe it was just because of the results I don't know but anyway um, let's just do a quick poll John did you buy a ticket in the end I actually did. You did. So you were a person who wasn't going, and then people on most people on the West Coast, because you were all in bed when the tickets went on sale, uh, didn't get one, and then you bought one anyway. You... Yes, I think B-A-S-T-A-R-D is the word you were looking for. <laughs> but it was, and I'd have to say, kind of, you know, I, I had signed up for the SMS alert, but it was it was friends who who uh, texted, and even Jeppy called. By the time he called, I just answered the phone and blurrily said, "Yeah, I know." He says, "Okay, good, goodbye." And then I, even I was about not so, to do so it. So what time was, was it? What time was it actually in San Francisco oh, it when it was, went on sale? It was, well, they, they went on sale at 5.30. I got the text at like 5.38 in the morning. It was insane. So it's a good job you're a light sleeper. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Chris, did you get a ticket? Uh, I opted not to go this year. I um, figured it'd be good to let somebody else go in. I had a blog last year when the same thing happened, but we had an 11-hour window instead of two hours. And I have sort of come around to thinking that uh, I used the phrase, actually, I, I, I backed up Erica Sedun on this point. I think right now what you have with WWDC is broken. Um, I think it's a real problem that we have a lot of developers who should be there, can't be there because, you know, you think of organizations, big companies, governments that would never be able to approve a $1,500 purchase in a two-hour window outside of business hours. All those developers can't come. It's people like me who can come. And so you get a whole bunch of indie Mac hipsters, and that's great and all, but where are the people from the big companies, from governments? We're going to want those people developing Mac and iOS apps, and I'm concerned about that. And I think that was part of my reason to decide this year, you know what, this is this has gone too far. I think at some point in the future, Apple is going to start doing something a little differently, and I think they're, they already are to some degree. The, they can no longer count on WWDC as the primary means by which they deliver information to developers and get in touch with developers because they know so many aren't going to be able to make it, particularly at this point, you know, outside of the Eastern United States. And I think Europe had a better chance this time than last time of getting in. But, you know, I think of people in Australia and Asia uh, who are just completely out of it. And I, uh, I think that sort of soured me on it to a certain degree. So I'm taking a pass and uh, hopefully somebody is going to take my place this year and get in for the first time and have a good experience. You've made me feel very guilty thanks ma'am yeah hey. you're you're one of these indie Mac hipsters you know <laughs> yes and i'm an indie max hipster who has 1600 dollars this week that i still have from last week too <laughs> that, that's true that's true it's um i, I your, your point about the corpus but then again we've known wwdc is coming for so long that you should have got your pr- approval in advance the out of hours bit yeah that that's that's a difficult one i guess somewhere in the world is always going to be out of hours 
And so should West Coast United States get preference over anybody else? Is, you know, is, is that just favoritism? We got, well, we got negative preference. I think they, and I think that was purposeful. You know, of the, all of the things I've read about it, the most kind of reasonable suggestion I've heard is to have kind of like, you know, some period of time where you sign up in advance and, and it's almost like Apple open house. And maybe that's more of a nightmare for them. But, you know, if you get down to the fact that the, the most valuable thing is the time with Apple engineers, if they don't have to travel, it seems to me that that, that maximizes the time they can meet with people. But I think Apple being famously secretive. I mean, even when I've gone to the developer kitchens or to visit somebody, you, you, you go through three cavity searches and they have X people who were fired from the TSA doing the gropes at the entrance. So um, it's hard to imagine how they would have lots of strangers coming, um, especially people who are as nosy and curious as, as would be, you know, third party developers, how they could have them come to the campus without having, you know, and I would, I would also say for people who missed out, you know, yes, the sessions will be made available. We look at the other kinds of things you get from being there. One of the big ones that a lot of us talk up is the labs. The labs are very cool, um, but the labs are not going to solve all of your problems. Last year, I went to the AV Foundation lab with a question, and I stumped the developers there with it. And I kind of think it's like, you know, for anyone who's saying that WWDC is super important because the labs, um, this is going to sound mean to say, but... I hope you use your developer support incidents every year before you tell me how great the labs are because the labs, I'm saving that question just for that week in June versus, hey, I've got a support incident. I'm going to package up my code and send it off to DTS and I'm going to get my answer in some reasonable amount of time. I think for a lot of us, the labs and, and support incidents serve the same kind of purpose and the uh, advantage of a support incident is you know the engineer will be able to take time and really think through your code. So um, labs are great. I think in some quarters, they're underappreciated, but I think in some quarters, they might be a little overappreciated. I think that's good. I mean, basically, you can you can buy quite a few DTS incidents for sixteen hundred dollars. Um, so if you know if, if it's just about you know not that many, but you know a few. Um, but uh, some there is something about going through face to face and being able to explain stuff. But I did notice. I'm going to put a blog post out um, at the end of last week sometime. When I went to my first dub dub, which was only two thousand and eight, I would say for the majority of the week, the labs were fairly deserted. Uh, I mean, it, it's in the last three or four, um, three or four years that you know that suddenly the labs have you know taken off. And last year the, there was queue, queues in the labs. I mean, ridiculous queues, and, and it was like the engineers were under pressure to try and give you an answer and then get you out the door because you know there was this big queue, especially in things like the Core Data Lab and the, you know the iOS Lab and stuff like that. So already, I think um, those days of being able to walk into the labs at nine thirty in the morning and sit with an engineer until lunch, um, they're gone. Um, uh, which is, you know, not, not, not surprising. So, yeah, I, I don't know what Apple can do about it um, or whatever. But uh, so those who got tickets, congratulations. To those who were um, loving to the community and gave up their tickets, like Chris, we bow to you and your, and your grace and your, um, your humbleness uh, to the community. And um, to those who are crying still, well, you know, get over it. Life's tough. Right. Okay. John, it's time for that mag magic, magic link. Have you got one? Uh, no, no. Okay, so nothing. let's just introduce. Okay, Chris. Um, Chris is on the show today because uh, we, we want to talk about Core Audio, um, and uh, Chris has just released a, a book on Core Audio. Um, one of those uh, books that is far Microsoft long overdue in, in the Mac world, um, and he's come on here to uh, to talk about it. But I want to start, Chris, uh, first of all, by you know hopefully demystifying some of the audio world um, for developers. 
Um, for those who don't know, you know, we have AV Foundation, we have QT Kit, we have QuickTime, um, and we have Core Audio. Can you just give us a really brief summary of, you know, where these things all fit together and, and why we would end up looking at Core Audio before we start spending, you know, lots of time looking at it? Yeah. And I think um, one of the distinctions I often make between media frameworks, and this is a cross-platform thing, and this is my own little pet theory. This is not some established thing, you know, within media programmer dumb is, but I often have a taxonomy where I will break media APIs down into three general groupings. Uh, I call them black box APIs, streaming APIs, and document APIs. So let's take the simple one first. A black box is basically, or I, I would say a black box or even a boom box is a better metaphor. And this is something where you have maybe the ability to play, stop, record, change time within a file. So you can play back from a file. Maybe you can play back from a network stream. Maybe you can record to a file, but there'll be no meaningful access to the media data itself. You won't be able to, you know, perform cuts or mixing or perform effects, but this is very useful to a lot of people. I mean, you know, if you write a game, you know, you might only need audio for, say, the background of your title page or a few incidental sound effects. And those are things where you want to read from file, play it, forget about it. You don't want to do anything else. You are not an audio programmer. You want that to be simple. And that was something we actually didn't have in iPhone OS 2 was a simple way to just play back an audio file, um, at least one of non-trivial length. We had system sounds, which are great for incidental sounds, but they stayed memory and they chowed a lot of memory. So if you had like some long song, you couldn't use it for that. Um, so you had to use core audio, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, so if you want access to the media data, then I think there's a fundamental question of, do I want access to that data at the time of processing as it's moving through my system? Or do I want an offline sort of access? Am I going to have some media? And I'm talking again, generally about all media APIs. So let's talk about audio and video here. Am I editing a movie? And, you know, is the app I'm writing more like, say, um, IMT Pain, or am I doing something more like GarageBand? If you think about it, those end up being two very different things because IMT Pain, everything I'm doing with the media is happening in real time. I'm capturing it and I'm performing an effect on it and then I'm sending it out to the speakers. Whereas GarageBand, the media is in a stopped state and I want to take this part and I want to cut this and I want to, you know, change a mix here and change right to left. And so, um, you know, that's the difference to me between the streaming APIs and the document APIs. So if I am writing something where I am editing a file, a, a document of media, then I'm interested probably in QuickTime, QT Kit, uh, or now AV Foundation. Uh, QuickTime and QT Kit never existed on iOS. AV Foundation uh, really serves those purposes for us on iOS. And now AV Foundation came to the Mac in Lion, and it's it's obviously the, the heir apparent to QuickTime. So for the document kind of things, those are the APIs you're talking to. Now, if you're talking about, I want to mess with media at playback time, at record time, or I want to generate media programmatically, then we're talking about a streaming API. And so for audio, that's going to be core audio. Okay, I mean that's really useful because often yeah, there's a multitude of things in knowing where to start. Okay, so um, unless you've got something you particularly want to say uh, about some of the other frameworks, you know, let's 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 dig into Core Audio and you know let's let's start with a little bit. What what is the minimum information I need to know about Core Audio before I even begin? 
Uh, you need to be comfortable with procedural C. And that's the first thing to say straight out because, um, and particularly on iOS, you know, I think a lot of the Mac programmers tend to be, you know, a little bit older. They're, you know, if they're my age, then you probably have programmed C at some point in your life. You know, for me, I learned C when I was in college. I used it intermittently. You know, I got away from programming for a few years and I was a journalist and I came back to it. I learned Java. So I was sort of like, you know, outside of the native code realm and screwing up pointers for a while, but then, you know, I was able to get back into it. But, you know, with uh, with iOS, a lot of our developers there, uh, and I also wrote an introductory iOS book for another publisher. And in our forums, we found that a lot of people who are adopting iOS were coming from the scripting languages. They were Flash guys, or they were server side guys who knew Perl, Python, Ruby. So they'd always had, you know, that that safety net of you know garbage collected languages they're always dealing with pointers or excuse me, they're always dealing with references they're never touching pointers um they're never directly dealing with memory uh so when you deal with core audio everything there is uh is good old-fashioned procedural c and if that's not something that's familiar to you and, and honestly you know not just familiar it's one thing to read it it's another thing to be comfortable with it you know you've got to be okay with you know malloc and free and keeping track of when you get to release stuff and um you know that the fact you don't have objects anymore um you know if you've if you've done a little bit with core foundation, you know, you're probably going to be pretty much set up both with your, your, your use of C and also Apple's conventions for how they present a, a procedural C API because, you know, the, 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 the peculiarities of core foundation are something you also see in core audio, the way that Apple, you know, has opaque types and they're not quite classes, but you can still get kind of an object oriented experience. Um, you can treat these things as objects and, you know, it sort of feels OO, but that's very different from a lot of other styles of uh, procedural C programming. Um, if you go and use open GL, open AL, you'll find that that's a very different style of procedural C. So as long as you're grounded in procedural C, you can make a start with core audio. Now there's also going to be a separate issue of how much do you know about the theory of sound? And depending on what kind of thing you're doing, that might be something where you'll need to catch up a little bit for, for a lot of things. You wouldn't need that. It's going to be more of a question. What do you want to do with it? Okay. So this is, I a, have a, so I'm John after you. So a, a quick one. So if you have somebody who, who didn't uh, study C in college, but you know, is comfortable with Objective C and, and, and OO languages in general, is there is there a guide somewhere, or is there anything that you would recommend for people if they so desperately wanted to to, to work at audio at this low level that they're willing to to make that investment? You know, it's funny. I have long believed that there needs to be a C book for people who know. OO languages, but don't know C, and they need to learn just enough C to be able to handle something like Core Audio, something like OpenGL, uh, um, all of those kinds of uh, procedural C APIs. I would not recommend using the classic text, which is Kernighan and Ritchie, uh, KNRC. Uh, I had that in college. Everybody adores this book. I went back a few years ago and looked at it, and it's, it's an excellently written book, but it's a book from 1978, and it feels like a book from 1978, and it keeps making analogies to like Fortran and Pascal, which really don't do as much good anymore. Uh, I actually tried to write that very book, the, the C for people coming over to the iOS platform, and got 100 pages in, and the deal with the publisher fell apart, and so that never got done. So I 
don't really know what I would point people to if you are a, an obc person who wants to become a C person. I don't know that that book or that whatever resource is, maybe it's not even going to be a book. Maybe it'll be a website. Maybe it'll be uh, the School of Hard Knocks. Uh, I think that's what it is at this point. Huh. Well, maybe that's something. I don't know. Do you still own the rights to those 100 pages? I mean, you should do the world a favor and put them up somewhere. <laughs> Uh, it was very fragmentary and kind of rushed, and it's not at this point anything particularly useful. So right. it might be something to return to someday. All right, but, back to you, Scott. Okay, Sorry. so yeah, so core audio is is in C. Um, yeah, is there is there? A, I mean, obviously, it's a low level API. We were talking about that. Now, is there a reason that there's never been a um, what I call a skinny wrapper put around it or a tight wrapper put around it in Objective-C. I mean, I know sometimes they say we don't want to make it these big Objective-C things because of performance, but that's often putting loads of stuff on top of the framework. I'm talking just a really nice tight wrapper around around stuff um, and doing stuff. Is there any reason you think of that? They've just not got around to it or is it so low level or it's so much about performance that that's never going to happen? Uh You've kind of got two of my three answers right there, uh, but I will take that in turn. Uh, first off, you know, this being one of the core frameworks on the Mac, there was always a desire that it be easily callable from both Carbon and Cocoa. So that's one reason not to do OBSI is, and in fact, the, the core audio guys themselves are clearly all Carbon programmers. They came over from Classic Mac and some of the additions they've made uh, to core audio in a directory called uh, Public Utility, which is something Xcode used to give you. Now in Xcode 4.3, you have to go and download it separately, but all that stuff is written in C++. So if you start incorporating that, we have one example in our book that does, you have to start using Objective-C++. So, you know, it's good that it's in C because it's easily callable from both languages, although ultimately their preference for C++ can be a little bit of a hassle. There are certain places in um, in core audio where you should not use Objective-C uh, there are, there are callbacks you get, usually when working with audio units, that are on a real-time thread. They're in a very tightly managed window of time that you get to do your work. Uh, some of the examples in our book, you have like about, you know, the, the, the callbacks come to you every hundredth, eleven hundredths of a second or so. Um, and with that, obviously... Um, Message dispatch time is not deterministic, uh, particularly uh, allocation time is very non-deterministic. And the rules for operating in these tightly timed callbacks is, you know, don't do anything that takes a long time, but also, most of all, don't do anything that takes an unknown amount of time. So the use of obsidy in those contexts is very much frowned upon. Now, having said all that, there actually is a fairly nice new obsi wrapper around some of the pain points of uh, of core audio, and it's a project called Novocaine, and it's on <laughs> GitHub. Uh, yeah, it makes all the pain go away. It was actually developed. It was a guy who was in um, a guy who was in Ann Arbor Cocoa Heads, uh, which I attend, and um, he did. He's done a couple core audio apps. His first one called Oscope, which was a, an objective. Excuse me. It was an OpenGL viewer of an oscilloscope with the audio coming in uh, from the microphone port, and then he just used Core Audio to capture it and represent it on screen. And he's done a couple other Core Audio projects since then, and he's basically done enough that he wanted to give himself that nice obsy wrapper. And so, yeah, go check that out on GitHub. It's called Novocaine, and it looks pretty nice. Okay, so. I don't want. I don't want to spend forever just dwelling on why a framework is this and that because that doesn't actually teach us anything. Now, okay, um, 
is there, you know, sometimes when you're looking at something, there's a whole bunch of fundamentals that you need to understand about how a framework is built. And if you understand that, then everything else makes sense. And then there are other types of frameworks where everything is just an absolute, totally random bunch of calls. And, um, <laughs> and basically you need the knowledge of a guru to even begin. Yeah. With Core Audio, is there some basic principles we can understand to begin with to begin to get the framework or are we just, it's deep end only? I would say the two things that are going to really help you understand core audio, and we attack these early in, in the learning core audio book. The first one is just understanding the problem domain itself, uh, much the same way that, you know, I, I don't understand security, for example, because I do not understand the mathematics of signing, and I don't understand public and private keys and how the cryptographic functions can you know, validate and authenticate and do all those kinds of things. There is this theoretical knowledge behind the APIs you, know, you could have very different APIs, and in fact, for the same ideas in different uh, languages and different frameworks, you would have very different APIs. But the core conceptual knowledge behind that is something you should have at least a familiarity with before you start to dig into the APIs or you will get lost. The same could be said of audio. Um, you've got to know a little bit about the physical process of the fact that you know what we're dealing with here is we are representing the movement of waves of air pressure. You know, as I speak into this microphone to you, my larynx is vibrating, that vibrates the air, it's picked up by this microphone that's converted into an electrical signal, sent over the internet, comes out at your end. Again, it's an it's a signal um, by which we mean, you know, that the, the voltage is going up and down that causes the, the membrane in the speaker or the headphone on your end to vibrate. That pushes the air, it gets picked up by your ear. Um, there's a core concept here of the movement of these waves. And in digital audio, we don't represent that as a continuous uh, analog electrical signal. We chop it down into tiny, tiny, tiny little bits. And then those are numeric. And of course, it's a lot easier to send a digital signal over the internet than an analog signal over the internet. Um, so understand both you know, the, the, the physics of audiology and then how we turn that into a digital system is just a little bit of knowledge there gets you pretty far. As long as you understand, A, the fact that we deal with waves, which also means that, you know, uh, when we usually do, say, a CD is 44,000 samples a second. So with the waveform, we're going to chop that up into 44,100 slices, and we're going to take that value of whatever the voltage is there and represent that as a number. It's important to remember that any one of those values is meaningless because we can't perceive one sample. The only thing we can perceive with our ears is the repeated movement of, of air, the waves themselves. So one high or low point in a wave doesn't help us. Um, so within core audio and with any audio API, we'll tend to deal first. We're going to want to get these samples in, in large groups because then we can start to work with the waves and we can start to process them. We can store them. We can transport them. So that background knowledge of how sound works is one thing that will help you. And that's chapter two of our book. The other thing that I'll put out there about core audio is for the person who just wants to, you know, get their toe deep into the water, look through the APIs. You, you think of certain things that you, you expect a, an audio API to do. It should be able to record. It should be able to play. It should be able to do these things. You won't really see functions that say start recording, stop recording, open a file, and play it. Um, there are certain abstractions over it, but moreover, throughout core audio, a lot of work is done with the setting and gettings of properties. So 
when you create, there's a couple different um, APIs for recording and playback. One is uh, a convenient one is called the audio queue. And when you want to get a little lower, you're dealing with audio units. But either way, to configure them and set them up and tell you what the, tell them what you want them to do, you're always going to be setting and getting properties. You're going to say, here is a property with a C struct tells you the format of audio you're going to receive. Here is a, a struct that's going to tell you how I want to set up the right-left mix. Um, but you'll always be setting and getting these properties. Um, so you honestly, you can discover more of the functionality of, of Core Audio by looking at all the defined constants for properties more than you can the functions you call because basically there'll be a small number of abstractions around things like units and cues, and then it'll always have get and set properties. And then you just look at those properties and say, oh, hey, I can... I can build a mixer. I can build uh, an effect box. Uh, okay. I mean, you're, you're beginning to use terminology that people are not familiar with audio. You may or may not know on core audio units and cues. Um, would it be useful if we begin to step through a little bit about core audio and talk a bit about playback and talk a bit about recording and, and maybe just introduce some of this terminology where it fits? And, and, and yeah, I, we don't want to sit here and do a low level viewing core audio. It, we are, we are in audio, sure. but an audio is a terrible medium in which to impart API information. Um, so we, we, we never, you know, the days of late night cocoa when we used to list parameters and everything to calls and everything on, on the show, those days are gone. We don't, we don't do that anymore because it's not needed. However, you know, possibly a high level walkthrough of some of these things to get a little bit of understanding is going to help someone. And obviously we're going to suggest they buy your book. That's good given. And we'll keep putting a link out to that and give it another shout out in the, uh, later on. Uh, but you know, let, let's whet people's appetites. So it is, is playback is, is playing something or a file or playing a stream a good place to start or recording? Where's a good place for us to just start a talk? Sure. Let, let's let's split up core audio into some respective areas of functionality. Um, early on in the book, I mentioned that uh, we can sort of split core audio into a grouping of three what I call engine APIs, and those are APIs that are generally responsible for the processing of audio through the system. Play out, play back. I mean, I don't want to say play back because you might be playing something that's being generated, uh, being created right now, being received over the network, so that's not really playing back something that already existed. It's just but it's still it's going out to speakers, out to headphones. So we'll have playout APIs and recording APIs. So we have these engines that will process audio, and we've got a whole bunch of helpers. And the helpers will do things like put audio into a file, read audio out of a file, do format conversions where you go from the, the compressed formats like MP3, AAC, lossless, ILBC into the uncompressed format which is what you will actually you know, need to work with at the lowest levels because that actually represents the waveforms that will you know, be an analog signal that can then go out to speakers or can be received from a microphone. So you have helpers, and they give the three engines. And the engines are audio units, audio cues, and open AL. Now, open AL and audio cues are actually built atop audio units. So you have three different abstractions for how you want to work with your sound. Uh, the first one we take on is audio cues. And audio cues are a convenience. And I mean, it it's probably strikes people as crazy to look at this code and say that this is a convenient high-level API when it takes at least 100 lines of code to do anything. But compared to the other levels of the API, it is quite convenient. And if you want more convenient, then you can go get Novocaine, and there's your OBC wrapper for you. Um, or there's a few actually in AV Foundation. There are a couple um, 
there are three classes in Navy Foundation that preceded its uh, its existence as the Air to QuickTime, and they are AV Audio Recorder, AV Audio Player, and AV Audio Session. Those are obviously wrappers around audio cues that let you record and play and inspect the uh, the traits of your device. Um, and that's only on iOS, I should mention. But let's talk about the queue. The queue is convenient because it takes away some of the threading and the timing concerns for you. So if you set up uh, a recording queue, then you will be called back periodically and you'll receive buffers of captured data, uh, captured audio data from the mic, and then you can do whatever your program needs to do with that capture data. You write them to a file. You maybe, or if you are mathematically inclined, you're maybe performing some sort of processing, some analysis, uh, whatever you want to do with the data, it just comes back to you periodically. The flip side of that would be a playback queue where you are called back periodically with empty buffers and you are responsible for filling them up. Maybe you're reading from a file. Maybe you are generating sound programmatically, whatever. That's how you are delivering new sound to the system. Um, you can already tell this is low level because we're talking about, you know, here's a, a four kilobyte buffer that you have to fill up byte by byte with audio data. You know, and this is, you know, it, it, for, for core audio, that's very high level. For what a lot of people would, would expect to be doing, that's obviously quite low level. But again, the whole reason you would be dealing with core audio is that you want to get your fingers into that level of the media processing. If you don't, you're probably using one of the higher level abstractions anyway. Um, so those are cues. And like I said, that gets you out of any sort of trouble with the the limited time callbacks. Uh, I also mentioned OpenAL. That is also implemented atop audio units. OpenAL is the the API was designed by a third party. It came from originally came from like guys who were who were porting uh, some games over to Linux and they wanted a common audio library, but it, it got taken over by Creative, who makes sound cards. And um, it's basically it's designed to resemble OpenGL in terms of modeling sources in a 3D space that emit sound. And so you can organize, you know, here's a source. I'm going to attach some buffers of audio to it. And I'm going to define its uh, position in a coordinate space and what direction it's facing and how fast it's going relative to a listener. I can have many of these sources. They may use the same or different buffers. And then, you know, that listener will start hearing that sound. Uh, in the here and now, we only have, you know, the, 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 what the listener hears is just uh, stereo, you know, either on headphones or on speakers. But if maybe in the future there were, you know, a, a Mac with a, a sound card that had, you know, like a surround sound on the fly, then your code would, you know, be able to portray a sound that starts behind you and comes around you and stuff. Um, so that's open AL, open audio language. Now, both of those, as I said, are implemented top audio units. And audio units are really the heart and soul of core audio. We spend our two biggest chapters talking about audio units because the two things they give you are they are the point of the most direct and lowest latency audio processing on the system. You can get things done in, in the order of... Like I said earlier, with the timed callbacks, you're getting, you're running on a tenth of a, excuse me, a hundredth of a second latency. So if I put some audio into an audio unit, I will hear it within 
you know, a hundredth of a second. So I'm basically running at frame rate because I'm getting, you know, 30, 40, 60 callbacks a second. Um, so when my audio is running at about the same speed and latency as frame rate, then I can get, you know, that's really nice for doing something like say a virtual instrument. If, if I'm like blowing into my mic or I'm pressing a button, you know, I want to hear that sound immediately. I want that, that sense that what I'm doing has an immediate audio payoff. And if there were any kind of delay, any kind of latency, that illusion would be, would be uh, wiped out. So first advantage of audio units is just the extremely low latency. And the second is this is where all the processing goes on. So audio units is also where you can start to connect these units. And the basic unit is just one that does input from uh, microphone output to speakers or headphone. But there are other units that do things like create audio effects that they, you know, cut off certain ranges. So you can cut off your, your hissy high end. You can cut off the low end. You can uh, perform a, 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 an equalizer kind of effect to, to raise and lower different ends part, or parts of the, uh, the the sound signal in different bands. There are uh, units that will receive input from files or from MIDI devices, and you can combine these. You can mix them together. So this is where you start to see the concept of something like GarageBand, where I'm going to have I'm going to have a microphone coming in, I'm going to have a MIDI device coming in, I'm going to play something back from a file that I've already recorded, and I can take all these sources and I can mix them together, and I can say, well, this I want to be a little louder, or I want to give the user the ability to change the respective levels of all these things coming in, and then put put out one stereo mix that could then go to the speakers or to a file, and that's really the power down at the audio units level, and that's you know, like that is the heart and soul of core audio is, is audio units. But we take our sweet time getting there. It's, you know, chapter seven, I think, before we hit audio units, because, you know, you need to be pretty grounded with uh, how, how core audio does things and with your audio theory before you touch that stuff, because that's the hard part. Scotty, at some point, can I be greedy and, and start ask some questions related to things that I've been thinking about and working on? You feel free, John. You feel free. Okay, so, you know, I'm always very interested in, in catch, capturing audio where people are talking about, you know, a photograph or a document and, and, and actually requesting that multiple people make recordings with the idea about being able to put it together um, to make more interesting presentations. And, you know, it, it's certainly easy enough and has been for a while back to the days of, of, of QT Kit to have basic audio and video recording, and that's all wonderful. But one of the, the challenges I have from user experience point of view is people have a hard time kind of getting in the flow when they're trying to, to, to speak if they have to futz around with, you know, starting the record process and, you know, going, is this thing on and blah, blah, blah. Or there's a bunch of empty spaces. So, you know, being able to trim something is, is you know, I think critical to getting a, a good end result. And, and in the end, also kind of equalizing the sound levels of both of them so it, it kind of sounds a little bit closer as if they were in the same room or at least having a natural conversation. This to me, sounds like the type of stuff that that audio units would be able to help with right for instance if, if you've recorded a session and even either, either while you're recording it or after you've recorded where you want to kind of loop through and figure out you know what's going on is this stuff kind of pre-roll cruft and could i you know uh, uh kind of pre-trim it you know do you know what i'm talking about is is this the type of thing where i'm on the right track or, or am i totally off 
Well, you know, if you think about what you're saying there, you're still sort of describing it with the document metaphor. You're saying, I've got these separate tracks that I want to deal with. I want to chop off this part of it because this is pre-roll kind of cruft. You know, I want to uh, adjust their levels relative to one another. Um, the way you describe the problem, I think I would initially probably try to solve that with a QT kit or with an AV foundation because it sort of sounds like the problem domain here is a document rather than an on-the-fly processing. And I should mention, given all that, um, core audio is still going to be the engine by which a document-based API does its sound work. So, you know, when you when you edit a QuickTime movie, when you edit something with Final Cut Pro, which is based on AV Foundation, the actual work inside that app is going to be performed by Core Audio. And there are a couple very small little places where there's actually some interesting crossover between AV Foundation and, um, and Core Audio. Its internal engine will be Core Audio, but the problem you described there, the, the, the abstraction sounds like you want to be looking at a document API, probably like AV Foundation. Well, both. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right that, you know, in some cases people would be, you know, recording something and maybe sending that file off to somebody. In other cases, especially now that, um, let's see, is it public? You know, so GameKit is, is coming to the Mac, right? And I don't think that's, I hope I haven't revealed anything public that's not already known. Um, and so the, I'm more and more interested in trying to get multiple people online at one time, being able to 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 add these audio recordings. In which case, it would be happening in real time. Is is, is there is does that come into play, or or is it still something I should? Not- you know, it's interesting you mentioned on the Mac. There is there is an audio unit on the Mac that does not exist on iOS, and it is a a network. I.O. unit, and I think it's called AU Net Send, AU meaning audio unit. Right. So Net Send and Net Receive are units that can participate in a network-based um, audio chat. And then because they're audio units, you could put them into a graph and then start tweaking things like the equalization, like the mix, like that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing you would be able to play with on the fly. And it's also interesting to note that the, those two units do not exist on iOS. Uh, both platforms have a uh, an input-output unit that does echo cancellation for VoIP applications. But on iOS, you would have to write the whole network stack yourself, which I haven't been in a hurry to do. So... <laughs> But yeah, that's true. You know, you would have the ability to do that. And I've, I have long wanted, I don't know that I will ever get the chance. I have long wanted to do a, uh, a sort of all in one podcast producing kind of thing uh, based on core audio, because, you know, you look at how you produce a podcast or what you're doing here today, you're going to record in one app, you're going to network over Skype, you're going to record it locally, you're going to have to, you know, edit it somehow. And then you're going to do a transcode and then you're going to post it somewhere. I've always thought, you know, you could put that all into basically an IDE of podcasts that would do both the, the, the recording, hopefully with network-based participants, allow you to do the live mix, maybe do a, a post mix, do the compression, upload it to the sites that we know about that, you know, people like to put uh, podcasts on and, and write all your, your, uh, your RSS feed for you. I mean, that would be a very fun package to do because you can just sort of, you know, combine the things that right now we have to use, you know, 10 different applications for, put them all in one place. And, you know, core audio would definitely be at the heart and soul of performing that audio engine during the record time. And also it could be used for the edit. Please write that. Please write that. Yeah, that, that shouldn't take more than an afternoon, should it? 
Yeah, should, should I kick off a Kickstarter for that? I was just about yeah. to say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be first to line up. But th- th- that, th- that is also kind of a very interesting problem. So if you're trying to analyze two audio tracks and you know that they were started roughly within the same time, is that a type of thing that, a, that, a, that a core audio might help with it to be able to say, okay, these, that, 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 let's say that it is something where you have two parts of a conversation is there something that programmatically can say, okay, well, this looks like it's there's a lull in this track and 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 a kind of some waveform over here, and being able to use those kind of two gaps, like two kind of sawtooths or something, to or two gears to kind of mesh with each other to to get an idea about where each one started to to sync them up. Well, um, that's sort of a, of a digital signal processing concern, and so yes, you know, with Corati, you would have access to that level uh, of the data, and it's a question of. Um, uh, you know, how hard you want to solve that problem uh, because, you know, you could also just, you know, put those waveforms in a GUI and let the user just, you know, adjust those manually. But if you wanted to do it programmatically, yes, that's exactly what you could do is you could look for those lulls or in a conversation like this where we're all geographically separate, you know, if, if when we started this, if someone just did a clapboard and we snapped, you know, like they do in movies, that would be a specific sound that you could just look for that sound in the data and sync them up. Um, there's also within your, uh, uh, within your processing, there are timestamps that you can use to sync things up, but I believe they are system local. So if I was receiving something over the network, that wouldn't necessarily have timestamps from your machine. It would more be you know, the timestamp when I, I got my call back. Hmm. So that's another way you could do sync, but I don't think it would quite solve the problem you're describing. Okay, I will stop being greedy, but that's incredibly helpful. <laughs> I think one of the things that we're, we're learning here, though, is, is you know, these these other tools like UTKit and AV Foundation they've arrived for a reason. This stuff is difficult, um, and you know, well, if, if you the other thing is you know, look at other platforms. You look at other platforms, and they haven't even tried to solve this problem. You know, I I as I was doing this book, I went over and I looked on the other side because I used to be a Java guy, and you know, for a while I fancied myself you know the top dog of Java media programmers. I actually I wrote a book on QuickTime for Java. I was also working with the Java media framework. And the thing when you go look on the other side, I looked at the Android media specification, and it's next to nothing. I mean, Android.media lets you play from files in the network, and on some devices lets you record. And that's it. They've just basically washed their hands of getting deeply into the data and being able to do these kinds of really tricky things because they simply don't have an answer. Um, because it's one of these things where the answers can be tough. And, you know, it's one of those things where if it's an 80-20 thing, they've sort of given up on the 20. And it drives me nuts. This might not be for everybody, but for those of us who need this, we are very, very grateful we have it. But I think the point I was going to make there, this is about for those who need it. I think it's fantastic that developers have access to this low level. But I think, you know, you just look at your book. It's it's not a short, you know, it's not a pamphlet by any means. You know, it's a decent-sized book. And I'm sure that you would say, that yeah, when you finish that book, you have you know you have been introduced to core audio, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and then now, yes. now now you've got enough that you can go and explore it and do something with it. Um, so th- this is a case of you know you're going to need a good reason to invest yourself in this because this this isn't 
this isn't something you're going to look at a piece of sample code and be up and running in the afternoon with like you might do with a QT kit sample or something like that. So, you know, people are looking at core audio, make sure it's what you need first. Make sure, you know, just like John's question, make sure that um, QT kit or AV Foundation isn't going to do this because you are going to be making a major investment um, of your of your life and your time if you want to become any good at this stuff. It was one of the first things I tried to do on iOS was, or back in iPhone 2, as I said, oh, hey, this looks cool. I think I'll write a web radio client for iPhone. This sounds like fun. How hard could that be? And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I have this mess of code that makes no freaking sense whatsoever. I ended up throwing it over to, uh, to DTS as a support incident. And what I did was um, I converted my iPhone code because they didn't have support incidents for uh, iPhone at that point. I converted it back into a Mac app and threw it over to DTS and got some help saying, okay, you really don't know what you're doing here, do you? And it turned out my DTS engineer was the guy who co-authored this book, Kevin Avila. Uh, I met him at the next WWDC. And the other dirty little laundry about that was that um, he we interacted for a week or two and then he basically completely disappeared for three months and this was early in 2008 and what happened was all of the um, DTS engineers basically got pulled into live development to get um, the final version of iPhone 2 and the SDK out the door for WWDC. So basically in that spring of that year, if you had a DTS support incident, it didn't get answered because everybody who was supposed to be helped with that was working on getting iPhone OS 2 out the door. So Uh are you you trying to tell us that uh, there was someone on this project when you wrote the book that really knew what they were doing and then you wrote down what he said or... (laughs) No, I'm joking. I am joking. <laughs> but the point is, I think you make a good, you, but you make a good point here. You were you were doing the dogs. You were reading something, and actually, you were trying this, and it came back. Nope, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, and and you know, I was very in over my head because I had had some exposure to uh, to Apple's way of doing procedural C from doing some calls into old QuickTime from Java being the, the Java native interface. I had a couple open source projects that did that. But this is the full time that I was really digging deeply into core foundation and into core audio and, you know, without a lot of guidance in that. And the thing is, you know, people say, oh, Apple doesn't have documentation and stuff. They have plenty of it. It's just spread out over a lot of places. And by choosing that project as the first place to really jump in, I was taking on a lot of things simultaneously and it got to be too much for me to deal with. That's, uh, now I'm going to pick up a question from the chat room because um, I'm worried I'm going to forget otherwise. Um, Maurice Kelly says, uh, the book only has 20 pages on core MIDI. Uh, was this section because you just couldn't fit it in or it was something you tagged on at the end or is it a low number of pages because actually it's that straightforward? This is a very specific question it's, about your book, which I know, yeah, we'll just interface between you and your customers. Yeah, uh, that actually, it's it's sort of a tease because MIDI itself could fill a book. Um, and in particular, you know, we're, we all, the only thing we take on in MIDI is the, uh, the capturing of events from devices and the way that they interface with core audio, because there is one part of, uh, of core audio deals with the processing of MIDI messages. And there is one little point which that can tie into an audio unit and then start creating sounds. Um, but we didn't deal with things like MIDI sequences where you know, people, I think, you know, particularly from the old days of, of polyphonic phones, we all had our .mid files that we would use as ringtones. Uh, um, MIDI sequencing is something we just chose to leave out altogether because um, really it was 
it, it could get to be a really big book at that point. And um, so he sort of gave you a taste of saying, we thought that the really interesting part of MIDI was we're working with instruments. And so we're just going to give you a little taste of that um, on the Mac and on, uh, and on iOS, where it only just got practical in iOS 5. And I, I know he refers to the, the core MIDI chapter, which is chapter 11, I believe. We do come back to it a little bit more in chapter 12, where we talk about the new AU sampler, which uh, was added to Lion and iOS 5. And that's a neat little thing where you get to take any source sample. You record something, and it will pitch shift it. So you can record like either a natural instrument or just record your own voice and turn that into an instrument. You can play it live, and it will pitch shift up and down to whatever keys you're pressing on your keyboard. So the idea was we wanted to give you the general concepts of MIDI and a taste of the APIs, but clearly there's a lot more to do there. Um, so it was one of those things where he said, we want to get it in, but you know we're going to put a limit on how much we want to really do with it. But if Maurice Kelly from the chat room comes to Grand Rapids, takes you to one of the famous brew pubs you were talking about, um, you will you will give him more information, though. I can make that invitation. And honestly, um, MIDI was kind of Kevin's chapter as much as it was mine. So you might want to head out to Cupertino. And I know Kevin will be at Dub Dub. Um, he may be just hanging out outside Dub Dub rather than being in the sessions. But that chapter started with him. He wrote the, the first version of the sample code for that. And I think he's got a little more of the understanding of the MIDI messages because I'm basically very happy with note on, note off, and, and pitch bends. And I think uh, Kevin can tell you a lot more about MIDI because he's got a pretty uh, strong understanding of that stuff. And so what is what is the thing that somebody wanted to, to uh, you know, suck up to... To Kevin, what what would they use? You know, does he like whiskey? Does he like you know French cheese? You know, whatever. What is it? Uh, I don't know. You know, Kevin. I think um, last year he had a big barbecue at the end of Dub Dubs. So uh, I'm thinking raw meat. Okay, raw meat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this book um, has been a long time in production. Um, I mean, and I know it's had various sort of um, logistical problems, and, and I know you weren't necessarily the original author either, and, and you picked it up along the way. Um, but equally, was this a tough book to write just because this stuff is really hard to sort of, you know, make digestible? Yeah, that, and, and the, the fact that the, the, the material itself is very difficult. Um, Kevin and I decided the way we wanted to write this was um, we weren't going to write it in parallel. You know, like it, I, I also have an introductory book for the Pragmatic Programmers that I co-authored with Bill Dudney. And that was one where we just divvied up chapters to say, you write these, I'm writing these, we'll read each other's stuff, go. And there you can work in parallel. Here we thought because of the difficulty of the material, we wanted to be really rigorous. We wanted to check on things. So we said, we have to write all these chapters together. You know, we've got to just do them in, in a serial fashion so that, you know, when you, even though we had co-authors, it was like having one author because it's just going to take that long to just work through all that material. Uh, some of this material was new to me. Um, I had done a little bit of work with audio units a few years ago. But I had never touched the conversion APIs myself. Um, this is my first time uh, playing with MIDI. I actually went out and bought the the Rock Band game keyboard because that can be hooked up as a MIDI device. And so that is like my one modern MIDI device in this household. 
Um, so that was that was new for me too. So there was some there was some learning on our part, and a lot of it was just the rigor of getting all the stuff right. Um, and we wrote a lot of sample code in this book. I mean, some of those chapters, I think between the two audio unit chapters, we have like four sample projects and some of them are like, you know, we have some pound defines to say, well, okay, we're going to do the easy version first. Then you can uncomment the pound define. And now we're going to add a whole bunch of effects and stuff. So it was just, um, I think the, the, the difficulty of the source material was for us something that we just had to wrestle with. Um, and then in some cases it was also digging up things that were very hard to find. You know, as I said earlier, Apple does document all this stuff, but sometimes the things you need are in 20 different places. Like when we started using the file player unit, that's something where all the properties you have to set on it to tell it what file to play and what parts of it to play, they're not in the Xcode documentation viewer. They are in one of the header files. And in fact, I forget if it's even, um, I think it's like audiounitproperties.h. It wasn't even audiounit.h. No, it was audiounitproperties.h. There's like a 200-line comment, and that tells you how you configure this thing. So there's uh, quite a bit of original research to figure this all out. So we can look forward to at least four or five different applications that can trace their code lineage back to that in the same way that, you know, the draw example begat, I don't know how many applications. I'll, I'll tell you how you can do it is uh, one of the first things we wrote for this book is that Kevin swears by a function called check error and everything in Quora Audio returns an OS status as its result code, uh, which also means that nothing ever, you know, when you say create something, it never returns that to you. You have to give it a pointer that will then be populated. Everything returns an error code. Some of those error codes are numeric and some of them are four character codes, which are, you know, like little strings. So Kevin has a little function called check error that will check to see if the error is anything other than zero. If it is something other than zero, which means we're in an error state, it'll figure out the best way to log that before it does a system exit. And we wrap every single core audio core call in the book with this check error function. And when I go and look now on the dev forums, half the example code I see people posting where they have something they're working on is all wrapped in Kevin's check error function. So I think it's one of these things where I can definitely see, it's like, oh, hey, you guys have been reading the book on Safari, haven't you? (laughs) So is there some fake error that you've put in there? And, you know, like in the same way that the IMDB puts in fake, you know, credits for movies to see if somebody's copying their data, is there there one kind of example bit of of, of an error that doesn't really exist in the wild, but that that people kind of put in, that copy and paste from sample code? No, no, I don't think it's anything like that. Um, honestly, I get a kick with the the error codes out of reading. You know, some the, the people at Apple have had a good sense of humor with some of their little four character codes, and some of them are some are little jokes here and there about you know when you actually get the error code back. If you don't compare it against a constant, if you just look at what comes back to you, sometimes like you know the the, the error for a bad data format is FMT question mark. It's like format. <laughs> nice. Right, okay, I'm just going to give the chat room a last chance to um, ask uh, any more questions. Um, they've, been, they've been quite quiet, but there have been lots of uh, sort of sort of comments going on there. Um, I'm, I'm going to highly recommend uh, that people go check out Chris's book. Um, I can say that because I've paid money for a copy, so I can say what I like about it. Um, and you know, I think you have... I mean, I knew nothing about Core Audio when I started reading this book, Um I have no, at this moment in time, I have no real project that I need to do it. So yeah, I'm realizing, you know, this stuff is quite difficult and I'm taking my time reading the book because I'm not pushing through for a project. However, you are very, very good, um, both of you, at, at making 
um, difficult concepts uh, understandable. And so if you want to do anything with audio, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give it my thumbs up. Not that you can see that on audio, but my thumb is up right now. Um, and uh, you should go out and buy it. And if you don't go and buy it, um, then people like Chris won't be able to sort of, you know, afford to go write these books. And um, although, let's face it, no one's ever going to get rich from a core audio book, are they? So I hope you've well, got. You know, I, I hope you've got other right retirement now. plans. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think any author at this point is going to tell you is that you know nobody is making decent money off computer books, but it's a way to get your name out there, and you know it has other intangible benefits. And it's one of those things where you know this is a book I did out of love. I my first book, as I said, was a media book, a media programming book. It was on QuickTime for Java. It sold like an absolute dog. So I perceived a need for a core audio book years ago, and I didn't pitch it to anybody because I didn't think any publisher in their right mind would take it. And then, you know, when Pearson had this book that had already started and had bogged down, and they came to me and said, oh, we're writing a, a core audio book. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, uh, yeah, and actually we want you to help finish it. I'm like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a labor of love, but it's like, you guys took the risk. I'm happy to help you see this through. Well, let this be a call. Like anyone who's listening to this podcast, next time they're in Grad Rapids, bring them, you know, bring bring Chris something nice, and also send a send a side of grass fed beef to to Kevin. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> and the other thing is. Um, you know, if, if if coming to Grand Rapids is going to be difficult for you, I have been doing a fair number of conferences this year. Um, yeah, I've been doing one talk on the all the iOS five changes to core audio is something I've done at uh, last year. It was at Voices That Matter. Uh, was that Seattle or Boston? I think last year, maybe Philadelphia. But that last year, this year I've been CocoConf. That was in. North Carolina and Chicago. The next one is going to be outside the Washington, D.C. area. I think there will be at least one more this year. Um, but I know CocoConf at CocoConf.com, um, their D.C. conference, uh, they've extended the early bird for one week. So that's going to be uh, available through the end of this week, which will be like May 4. So Eastern Coast of the United States, I'll be doing the core audio talk there. And I'm also going to do a new talk on HTTP live streaming which is another fabulously fun media topic. I mean, and um, I'm also going to try and get Chris over to uh, NS Conference so people in Europe can come and sample your expertise as well. He, he's on he's on air live now. He can't say no to that, can he? Well, I, I, the only people who can say no at this point is the State Department because I have not had a passport in 10 years and we just sent in our applications last week. So hopefully I will be okay for international travel within the next month or two. Yeah, some of the reprobates like they let out the States to come and see me, I'm sure you'll have no trouble. <laughs> as, <laughs> I mean, as they, let, they let John as come they... and see me, so I mean, you know. If, if well, John yeah, but like, you, you can... risk the point. They let me out of the country. It was getting back in. That was the problem. <laughs> yes. As long as none of the photos from the Stanford band show up, I'm good. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, you know, I um, I know this. We don't make this a plug show. Um, however, you know, I think um, you know, writing books is is a great thing for um, the community that we're in and it's a sign of a healthy community and um, you know, it should be plugged. So, you know, just give us a shout out for your upcoming book as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So aside from learning core audio, the other thing I'm doing is we are doing a new edition of the introductory book, uh, iOS SDK development. That's through the pragmatic programmers. I'm bringing that with Bill Dudney. Scotty, have you had Bill on the show before? Yeah, Bill's been on two or three times. 
Okay. Yeah. Bill, Bill's excellent. And he's, you know, he teaches the pragmatic studios classes and he's Apple's former uh, developer evangelist. So he's a great guy to work with. And that was a, a book where, you know, we had let the, the first edition sort of sit for iOS four. And then, so all of a sudden we have block based APIs coming out and we had X code four that basically made all of our screenshots completely irrelevant. And we basically practically guilted ourselves into doing a new version. We said, God, I, I, I feel irresponsible having an iPhone three book on the shelves with iOS five coming. So we had to do something new. And, you know, we, um, we did, we took a very different tact on this book. We said, we are no longer in the business of covering a, every API that that catches our fancy. What we are doing now is we are establishing best practices. We are looking at the established best practices for using the Objective-C language, the best practices for using your tool set. And we, you know, we took on things like internationalization, uh, accessibility, source control, how to get your stuff through the app store, uh, archiving your code so you can um, go and look at your crash logs when they come back to you and symbolicate them. We took a real, we, we basically said, yeah, if we didn't update this book again, what would be a good foundation to get people writing good code and developing good projects for the future? And that's the book we wrote this time. And I hope people like it. Sounds very cool. We'll make sure links to all these books and uh, all this stuff go in the show notes. Um, Chris, it's been it's been great having you on. We, um, please stay with us because we're going to do a few more things. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had the um, guys from Atlassian on. And uh, they spoke to us about Jira Mobile Connect. And uh, we did start talking about this last week on the live show, but last week's show uh, never made it out because the internet connection was so bad, we actually abandoned the show. Um, but John, you, you went and tried it in one, of, in one of your apps and you've got a story to tell. Yeah, it turned out really well. So, you know, I uh, I, I went and downloaded Jira Mobile Connect and, and I'm I'm not a Jira Power user and I'm not an administrator, but at the the company I'm doing some consulting work for, they they use it extensively, and I I wanted to see what the out of Xbox experience was, and I would say it was it was it was really very very good. But I I took the time to you know send them a detailed report of of, of some issues that I had because it's it's really nice to kind of look at things with the beginner's mind. Um, it helps it helps you know to remind you of how important it is to get all these little bits and pieces right and i think if you go to the time and trouble of, of sending it off to the person they're incredibly appreciative i know that Atlassian folks really were um because i was running into some problems with with some 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 failures that that should have been you know bubbled up uh closer to the surface that people could find out what was actually wrong and what was just amazing and nice for them is that they they went ahead and, and kind of sent me back a reply point by point saying hey here's what we did here's the the the, the diffs so you can see that we, we put it in updated our, our release notes updated some of the code and it, it was really it was it, it made me feel good about having you know used the app and, and seeing that my voice was heard but it would just you know uh, presented a, a good object lesson on, on in customer care um, and what was interesting about it is that you know my, my goal in doing it was yes I wanted to capture crash reports and yes I wanted to have people give feedback but the the other use case I found for it which was really nice is that uh, if you're ever doing applications where you are having people contribute to a database uh, where you want to kind of get people to make submissions, I found it a very nice way for people to be able to say, here's some place where I have something to contribute, a little bit of text, but you know, people are lazy and they don't really like to type. So if you can get them just to hit the record button and, and give their little audio note, it works really well. Um, and, and, and especially if it's the case that you are curating the, the database and you don't want things just to go out live, getting it into a, a Jira, um, 
issue that's tracked and you can decide whether their contribution should make it or be followed up on, I think is really good. So I, I have to give big thumbs up for my, for my experience. Excellent. And I just want to give a shout out as we, um, this week to um, CocoDev. Um, <clears throat> CocoDev.com, when I first came to the Mac, which I know wasn't that long ago, 2006, seven, you know, there really were virtually no websites out there. Yeah, there were, there were blogs were non-existent on this, on development subjects. And um, there were just a couple of um, uh, sites out there. Um, Coco Dev Central from Scott Seems one of them. Another one was Coco, Coco Dev that was run by, um, Stephen Frank from, uh, Panic, isn't it? Um, but he's, you know, he's been having lots of trouble. It's on an old wiki, um, that needed updating. He hasn't really got times, a lot of spam. And just a couple of weeks ago, he sort of said, look, you know, guys, I can't really keep this up anymore. And he took Coco Dev down. And I just want to give a shout out to, um, Joshua Nozzi, who's been a, a guest on this, this show a couple of times actually, who has um, taken up CocoDev, and he, he tweeted about five minutes ago that the new CocoDev is back, and it's up, and it's updated. So um, shout out to him in the community. I know there's a few other people in the community that are going to help him keep it there. But um, it's a wiki. If you've never seen it, go and take a look at it, and um, you know, maybe volunteer to help sort of um, curate it and moderate it, um, and keep this uh, great resource that's been around for about 12 years uh, going. So, uh, well done, Joshua. Um, thumbs up to you for uh, um, being a great part of the community. Right, so I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, so, uh, Chris, uh, an opportunity for you just to tell um, people where they can um, get hold of you. Tell us about your blog, your Twitter handle, um, your home address, telephone number, email, all that sort of stuff that you would like people Swiss to know. Swiss bank account number. Yeah, that's the ones. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I have a blog at uh, com slash blog. Uh but I'm probably more active on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is invalid name. So it's nice and easy to remember. And when you send it to people, they're sure that something went wrong. But nope, it's invalid name. And that's where you can keep up with me. And like I said, I will be at the uh, next one or two Coco Confs and hopefully NSConf next time that's around. And I won't be at DubDub, so do not look for me. Not unless you like pointless and fruitless exercises. <laughs> John. Remind us who you are, as if never, anyone out there doesn't know anymore. Uh, no, it's, it's not that they don't know, it's just they don't care. I'm not loved. Um, so you can find out all about my product, Memory Miner, at memoryminer.com. I blog um, very infrequently, but sometimes at memoryminer.com slash blog. And you can you can follow me on Twitter as Jembe, D-J-E-M-B-E, like the West African drum. Excellent. And my name is Scotty. You can follow me on Twitter as uh, MacDevNet. Um, I run iDeveloper uh, TV from which this podcast comes uh, and we release uh, training videos you can follow um, iDeveloperTV on Twitter as iDeveloperTV um, literally just before this show went on air the first phase of NS Conference 2012 uh, um, videos went up there so if you went to NS Conference you should be getting an email in the next uh, uh, 24 hours then you had to get yours or people out there can go and start buying them um, so now I'm expecting my servers to crash uh, with all that influx of cash that you are going to send my way Okay, this has been iDeveloper Live episode uh, 51. It's out the door at last. It's taken us a number of weeks. The guys we tried last week with, we're getting them back next week. We're going to have another go. But uh, thank you, chat room, for being with us. Some good questions and some good conversation going on in the background. But as usual, I'm going to say, until next time, you all take care. (laughs) 
Thank <laughs> you.